Welcome to the Vox Pop. We believe that everyone has a story worth telling. This podcast exists to tell those stories. We're your hosts. I'm Peter. And I'm Hannah. This is the Vox Pop. <laughs> we are joined <laughs> by Lindsay Jones. Welcome to the show, Lindsay. Glad to be here. We were talking about accents. Mm-hmm. Do y'all think you have accents? I definitely think I do. I don't think I do, but I know I've lived long enough to know that I do. Accents are weird because when you're in the midst of them for a long time, you don't even hear it. Oh, yeah. When I first came out east, oh gosh, I, I drove out because I had like a million bikes with me. Mm-hmm. And we had driven like a full tank of gas and we stopped in Elizabethton, Tennessee. Oh, my mm-hmm. word. And I legitimately thought that they saw my license plate <laughs> and they're like... Making fun of you or something? We're going to make them think <laughs> that this is like... <laughs> Bumpkinville. Yeah. That you just showed up like in the middle of a scene from a movie. Yeah. And they're all acting. Yeah. Yeah. No. That's honestly what I thought. I was like, <laughs> are y'all putting me on? Like this is this cannot be real. This Yeah. Even growing up here, we can still arrive in areas like that and <laughs> wait a minute. I grew up here and this is a whole different yeah. 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 Well, it's funny. When Mark and I moved to New Hampshire, you obviously get the northern accent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you learn the northern accents, like the Mainer accent, the Southie accent. But then, you know, when you're in the South, you don't hear it. Like you said, you're immersed in it. You don't hear it as much. But then you could pick out, like, that person has to be from Alabama because yeah. they have that Alabama accent. That person has to be from South Carolina. And so Tennessee. it's funny, mm-hmm. yes, how they're distinct in their, you know, in their regions, too. Yeah. And even, like... um. Uh, Larry, I th- he's from Old South, and you can tell because he puts it's a, a dollar. Totally different. Mm-hmm. He puts that A on the R, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and so yeah. you can almost, I mean, kind of tell where people are from. Mm-hmm. And Crazy. there's this thing called code switching. Have you heard of that? I don't know what it is, but I know that whenever I'm speaking to someone with an accent, like you assimilate. That's exactly you, what it is. Whether you recognize you well, do that, or not. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. what I was just saying. Mark, like he does not have an accent, and when he talks to his parents, I'm like, what? <laughs> happened <laughs> and i've seen other people do that too mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's amazing so very fun well can you help us get to know a little bit about who you were as a young girl very active my parents always described me as um sprinting everywhere running into a wall not even recognizing the wall jump up take off again for sure so yeah always happy pretty optimistic and i still like if I start to feel cynical, I can kind of reel that in because I, I definitely feel like my true personality is, a, a, you know, hopeful, mm-hmm. optimistic. Yeah. We can all kind of get negative, but that's definitely like, I think my side of the comfort zone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely not usually a negative Nancy. And you grew up here? Is I grew that right? up in, in North Carolina, but okay. I grew up in Wilmington. Oh. Yeah. Beach bum. Yeah. Coastal girl. I miss it. Michael grew up here. And so... We came here 2011, mm-hmm. and uh, his parents still live here, so we're close to his family. And now that my parents are retired, trying to get them up here, so you have... That's a dream. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have brothers and sisters? I have an older brother. We're five years apart, and usually, like, you kind of hear a stigma, like, unless they're close together, they're not mm-hmm. going to be close. Um, but Clay and I were still very close. I'm a pest, and so I just chased him around. And pretty much forced him to allow me into anything he was doing and where he was going. So 
just the two of us. So, yeah. Yeah. What was early life like? We were, I mean, definitely still a very close, immediate family. And then holidays, so my parents are from Charlotte. They're high school sweethearts and grew up across the street from each other. And uh-uh. our family's like, yeah. So <laughs> my grandparents have always, you know, kind of known each other. And my grandmother actually just moved out of that house that my dad grew up in. So I could, every summer I'd always see like where they oh, that's lived so across fun. the street. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And so they moved to Wilmington. Um, my dad's job took him there when I was about five. So growing up was, I think it's definitely very family oriented. Yeah. You know, our holidays were traveling back to spend time with the, the grandparents in Charlotte. And so always spent a lot of time in North Carolina, you know, for sure, for the most part. But yeah, just, you know, reflection of the, of, of the, the earlier years of my life are just very, very family. Yeah. Hanging out with, with each other. We didn't necessarily travel a whole lot other than just, you know, back and forth to see family. But, but mostly positive. Oh, yeah. Like you look back with fond memories. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Did you and your brother get in trouble? Always. I would usually get him in trouble. And then mm. when he got in trouble, I would like sit outside his door and cry, you know, just be, <laughs> you know. Uh, you would cry outside of his door because you were sad that he was in trouble? Mm-hmm. And even you- though even though I was the the source of information for so whatever you- <laughs> took place. <laughs> that is awesome. What were you into? Like what were your hobbies and interests? I guess with, with how active I was, like sports and dancing, both, you know, kind of from a young age, I want to say like third or fourth grade. Mm-hmm. I can remember dancing. I think my mom put me in dance at three. And then dance really picked up um, around eighth grade. So at that point, my life was pretty much after school sports. or And then I would go straight from after school sports to dance class. Oh, wow. What were yours after school? Softball, basketball. Gotcha. Those two. But you were like a dance queen. Right. So, yeah. So like <laughs> whenever we hit eighth grade, um, that's when I joined a competition team that would tour and go to conventions and things. And so at that point, mom and dad were like, mm, we're pretty, you know, good at being your taxi, but we don't love it. So can you, you know, reduce this schedule down a little bit? So I picked dance at that point and dance kind of not kind of it definitely took me all over the world. So any travel I've done is always was related to me performing somewhere or going to a competition somewhere. And so, and that was pretty, that was like my life all the way up through maybe my, my sophomore year in college. Wow. It was, yeah, just school dance and then a little bit of babysitting on the side, <laughs> hanging out with friends and stuff. What kind of dance was it? Ballet's always been my favorite. So ballet's like the, the technique, it's the core. Mm-hmm. Um, so just like when you learn music and you love music and you might have a certain instrument, you have to learn how to read the music and you have to learn the, the technique to, to, to stay and, and uh, that's the core of the discipline. And so the same thing with dance. No matter what you do, ballet is always the, the base, the technique. So hmm. I just I recognized that discipline and, and just fell in love with it. And so everything else just kind of came pretty natural after you have that real core um, base. And if you enjoy performing, for some reason, getting on stage never, I don't know why, but it never, I was able to channel the nerves into like energy to perform. Mm. I just loved mm-hmm. it. I still love it. Yeah, I could get on stage in front of sold out gymnasium for something and, you know, not even sweat it. But then if I have to sit down and talk to two people, <laughs> <laughs> I want to crawl under a table. And So what you're saying is we need to get like a audience in here. Yeah. <laughs> 
probably true, as sad as it is. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you can isolate yourself from the, the nerves a little bit more when the yeah. bigger the crowd. Uh-huh. You know? But when it's, it's, it's more intimate, yeah. you're kind of like, oh, all eyes are on oh. me right yeah. now. Okay. What's your Enneagram number? Three. What does that mean for you? Strong three. Okay. Um, Enneagram, like kind of how I was telling you before, I'm, I'm very, um, our, our immediate family is real close. So we discovered Enneagram real similar to the same timeline that the church kind of did our mm-hmm. little study yeah. with it. My brother go, My brother lives in Charlotte, and him and his wife, their church, did a similar. Okay. And so also where he, and that's what I'm saying, family is such a big deal. <laughs> so my husband's sister also attends the same church and my husband's very close with his sister best friends and i'm real close to my brother and so everybody kind of knows each other they shared it with us have you guys heard an enneagram and similar to maybe what a lot of other people thought the minute we heard it we were like pentagram yeah what (laughs) that's weird what did you say why is your church doing that yeah exactly (laughs) and what's your number and and we think you're this and you should try it and so Michael and I are sitting up here in, in Asheville, and they're in Charlotte. We're like, what is going on? <laughs> so yeah. my brother recognized he was a four, and four is one of the most complicated ones. And my brother's always definitely had, like, some emotional, like, turmoil his whole life. Mm-hmm. And it was so revelational for him. Like, mm-hmm. it, it was so grounding. And so he just was real adamant. I really want you to check this out. And... I took the test, and when I got my results back, I was, like, disheartened. Like, I am not what my results said. I did not feel like I identified with it. So I called my brother back. I'm like, you're crazy. Mm. Like this test is bogus. It's not even close. Or, And then he says, no, like, don't do that. Don't just mm. discount it. Like read through each one and see which one you really truly identify with. And after I'd done that, I started recognizing where the, when I was answering questions, I was, mm. I was answering with what I felt like quote unquote would be the right yeah. answer. So there's a little bit of a mass there. So when I found, when I read three, when I read, so he said, please read all the way through them and go back. So three identified the most. And in that moment, I recognized immediately looking back in my past, how, you know, my parents always talked about how active and just like a little go-getter I've always been. Mm -hmm. And I saw where God put me with the right people to raise me and channel my intensity and my energy the right way Mm. certain things he had used in my life certain trials he used where my uh, so the three is an achiever yeah and so where my eagerness and my stubbornness to achieve led to bad choices Mm -hmm. and so and then I could also see retrospectively how God had used those choices Mm. to just mold me and and shape me even though that the you know we go through suffering and trial and you have two different kinds you have you have the trial that is is there to you really look up at God and you go what are you trying to show me in this mm-hmm. you don't think you've done anything to necessarily quote unquote deserve it but you're mm-hmm. just like this is tough and there's something going on here in your faith that mm-hmm. points back to to God hopefully you know that's that's kind of what you're as we read the bible that's what you want to do you don't and I'm not saying we don't ever go through begrudging moments in those trials but my trials specifically were Bad, like they were consequences to the bad choices I'd made. So as a three and recognizing and reading through like what an unhealthy three would be like. And mm-hmm. I was like, I have so many of those tendencies. And so I could see immediately like, wow, God, he shaped me at this point in my life so that here I am now and I've come through mm-hmm. 
and worked through the consequences of those bad choices. And I was just, I was just kind of like amazed that, I mean, that's, that's what it, it taught me was that I was able to look at my life and just see where he has orchestrated things that you, I never thought up twice about before that it was just part of my character and my nature from the beginning that he never left me behind because of those bad choices. So like I recognized it in then that, that there was a lot of grace that, that, that I experienced specifically through like the mid twenties of my life. Mm-hmm. So we were a very close family. It was a Christian household with my mom and dad knowing each other. They didn't go to the same church in Charlotte, but you know, they, they both grew up in Christian families. And so they, they were very transparent with my brother and I, um, showing us their need for Christ. And so they, they didn't, they, that's how they kind of sidestepped hypocrisy for us. Like we never looked at mom and dad and, and felt like their rules, we might've felt like their rules were too strict, you know, but they had a way at, at a young age of just saying, here's your boundaries. Mm. And these are rules at this point. And then as you got older and older, it was more like they removed the boundaries and they just being transparent and always having that open line of communication with us when we did make bad choices, we also knew that they were, it wasn't that mom and dad were always going to rescue us or, or like, of course, I guess there's a part of a parent that always wants to, I mean, we'll get to that. Cause there's whenever I, I finally came clean and told my parents the story about uh, what happened in my mid twenties, they were awestruck because I had kept it from them for so long because I wanted to yeah. fix what I had messed up on my sure. own. But there was a lot of grace, and so I kn- and I knew that that grace would be there. But I also knew if I told them what I'd done at a young age, they would sacrifice. So you know, when it happened, they would sacrifice so much to to fix to try and support me. That's where I thought that the their parenting was just so similar to the the example of Christ and where they showed us Christ was that they never took away any consequences. They never um, they would even say. You know, this is like like not in a rec- like it never felt condescending, mm. but it was just like, hey, I'm gonna be with you through this, yeah, and I wish I could change it for you, but you are, and then the, and then the support of you are gonna get through it, yeah, you know, so that was a lot from the enneagram question, but <laughs> but but it, but but it is that's why I love that you that that's a question and yeah. that's kind of part of our conversation is that. That is a big part of my story that when I found out or when I realized and, and learned um, about those patterns, you know, in our, in our personalities, it was definitely eye-opening. Mm-hmm. What are some of those tendencies that you have when you're unhealthy? When, you, when you're a three, achievement is like where you find that's your, like you're motivated um, in different ways. You're motivated through... Um, Shame, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's where it, it kind of negatively comes back is that the shame will produce maybe like a competitive spirit in you that you're like, I'm not going down. I'm not going to let this go down. And then you push to overcome. The negative tendencies, if you are if you are not looking for Christ or you don't have Christ in your heart or you're not looking for even the Bible as mm-hmm. a compass, if you will, then you you'll do anything to achieve what you're going after. And so that was where I was at a young age in life that I took advantage of my reputation to other adults that I knew I had trust. And they were people that I liked. And so it wasn't anything against the people. 
it was that I had a goal and I was using that goal um, to justify the bad choices I was making to get there. And also because I did have a, a, a life rooted in Christ and that even when I was making these bad choices, that justification can come on so, so thick mm. when you start that slippery slope. Mm-hmm. And then you just get like, wait, and then you'll use like the, the funniest things to, to continue to like make yourself believe that what you're doing is okay. Oh yeah. You know, you just, you grab onto it. You, I mean, and the, this is this kind of an example. What I was doing was I was taking advantage of the position I had at work, the job that I was working from. I guess I started there about 23 and worked like two and a half years. So got let go at 25 whenever they found out what was going on. And it was kind of a simultaneous thing. They, they recognized some, some indicators, some red flags, and, and how I was trying to cover up. Mm-hmm. And so they came straight to me, and they said, hey, we, we see what's going on, or we think we see what's going on. And even then... They trusted my character, mm-hmm. and they trusted me mm-hmm. so much that even when I got caught into the, my manager's office, he bold-faced looked at me. And what I was doing was I was stealing money. And so he bold-faced looked at me, and he said, Lindsay, did you take it? And I looked him straight in the eye, and I said, no, sir, I did not. And he actually let me go. I mean, he had to terminate me because even though I was still hiding the fact that I had taken money, I had broken protocol. And mm-hmm. that's what they recognized, and that's why they— Mm. They said, hey, we, we see some protocol going wrong here. Can you, you know, tell us what it is? And I was still able to just like, and so the, the three side of you, you'll, you'll be deceitful. Mm-hmm. And the, mm-hmm. the lies can come from anywhere just mm-hmm. because all you're doing. So in that, in that moment, I knew what I was doing was wrong. And I had even prayed at that point. I was, I was getting to the point where I was losing sleep because in my mind, I would picture um, getting caught. And literally in my mind, I thought like that, uh, Cops were going to come in yeah. and arrest me, and that everyone that I worked with would see, mm. and the embarrassment of that, the shame, yeah. and the shame yeah. of like everyone knowing that true, yeah, like what I was doing when nobody was looking. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody seeing that true side of me just became I was taken over by it, mm. and so that's kind of where I was praying, and I just reached out and I said, I know that what I'm doing is wrong. I've always known that what I'm doing is wrong. And I'm in a situation where I need a way out. And I don't think I have the courage to go tell anyone what I'm doing. Mm. But I know that I want to change. Mm. And I know that I'm doing nothing but going downhill. Mm -hmm. And so it was a blessing that the protocol was recognized. I've never denied that. And so that's where from that moment, there are so many details that are interwoven where I can see that from the prayer and even other consequences that were to follow from other bad choices I was making, he interwove all of it. Mm-hmm. And, and all he required from me was faith and the, I guess, the, the, the discipline, the tenacity, the, the word that I'm looking for is just kind of like that, that stubborn passion that he's always, that he put in me from a young age. It's like I recognized that I was going to use that to correct and, and, and pay the restitution and to overcome this blemish, you know. And it's not saying that I've, I've gotten to a point in my life where I don't sin. Um, I certainly am still a sinner, and I, yeah. it's just looking. We're works in progress. Exactly, yeah, just looking back hap- on that yeah. and saying and learning from it. And so that's, that's just 
it's such a big thing, and it kept me on my knees for so long that there's other responsibilities that mm-hmm. he he requires of me in my current season of life that though they're stressful and though I scream out to him and cry out to him, it's like he taught me earlier on that to all the way to my core that I know he's there. Mm-hmm. So it's a... Uh, the hope, so that optimistic part of my um, personality that I feel like I've always had mm-hmm. is even stronger, mm. you know, so yeah. not to say that you don't go like, why is this happening to me sometimes <laughs> when other oh, yeah. know, stressful sure. seasons happen, but. Sure. So to go back a little bit, so mm-hmm. you said sophomore year in college, you stopped dancing. Where did you go to college? At that. <laughs> at the um, time. I was going to say at that time. <laughs> um I was at UNC Charlotte. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I was a gold duster. I was on the dance team. We were amazing. Um, Go literally. Gold dusters. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I totally knew that. So 49ers, um, UNC Charlotte 49ers, and the gold okay. dusters is the dance team. Right, right, right. And uh, we actually we won uh, national champions that year. And oh, we wow. were on ESPN. I know you guys like have it. Oh, I have it DR. Yeah, I was going to sure. say totally. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, so yeah, 2001. National champion right here. Thank you very much. Where's your ring? Uh, I actually have it at home. Oh, That's a, yeah. You're going to have to send us a picture of that. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Okay, so it sounds like maybe you didn't finish at UNC mm. Charlotte. Nope. I I was always in, I had a heart for engineering. Mm-hmm. I love um, the technical, you know, I love math. I love science. Same, and, same. And <laughs> <laughs> You should see her face, right? <laughs> Hannah's face right now. Me and Peter in the math club. Yeah. Hannah's joining. No, sure I'm not. <laughs> I'll stay with the, the social club. That's right. <laughs> um, That's a misconception. Math people can be social. 100%. I'm not, I'm not saying you're not social. You sound like you are. Okay, well, Peter, <laughs> I'm just saying I'm not going to be in a club of any sort of um, you're school subject. You're not going to wear the math club t-shirt. I mean, I'll wear it, but if someone <laughs> asks me a question, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll happily wear the t-shirt. I love it. I'll tie dye it just yeah, for you. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> um, I always loved uh, math and my parents said, you get four years and if you finish in four years, great. We'll, you know, we'll pay your rent for four years. Good luck. Hope you finish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did not. <laughs> and then, um, but still had a, you know, kind of a stubborn urge to finish mm-hmm. school. Left Charlotte, moved to Columbia, South Carolina for a couple of years. So that's where I was in my mid-20s whenever this kind of like big shift in my life took place. Can mm-hmm. you go into that? Do you mind? You don't have yeah, to. Yeah, no. I, yeah. I mean, okay. I love it. It's kind of, I embrace it. And okay. even sure. even whenever we were going through it, it was something I didn't necessarily, it wasn't like, I wasn't sharing it with all of my friends, and there's still sure. like a lot of people that don't necessarily know. Yeah. But yeah. now I'm just like, here's my story. So Michael and I were from from 19 on. We were on again, off again. I like to to. I used to pick on him and tell him he got spring fever. That every <laughs> year when it got warm outside, he just wanted to go outside and play. And because it wasn't that he would like we'd break up because he was wanting to date others or mm-hmm. me either. It's just that he literally would get like ants in his pants and want to travel and go see his friends and. So off and on again for mm-hmm. our relationship. So when I moved to Columbia, South Carolina, I transferred from UNC Charlotte at that point and wanted to – I was trying to get into University of South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't take out-of-state tuition into account. 
even though it was only 70-something miles south of a lot of my friends in Charlotte, Columbia's not far away, so I could still mm-hmm. have that social network while I meet new people. And Michael transferred to Boone at that point. He went to App State for a couple years. and So we were pretty far apart and spent the longest time broken with that, that first year. Mm-hmm. And that first year in Columbia, to get over my relationship with Michael, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of funny, I even made a list of all the things that I wanted my husband, mm-hmm. like, attributes. And they were very creative. They weren't just, like, you know, you know, tall, dark, handsome. It was none yeah. of that. It was, like, you know, ambition for life, mm-hmm. um, likes NASCAR. Yeah, <laughs> I know. that's yeah, It was on there. And, uh, and then in the end, whenever Michael and I got married, mm-hmm. it was funny. I was writing that list to say all the things I didn't want, and then it turned out that it was just, like, a subconscious... Michael, Michael is actually all of these things. So, so we, yeah, we spent a year apart. I just wanted so badly to date, and I knew I wanted someone that was a Christian. Um, Michael was the only friend I met while I was at UNC Charlotte that was a Christian. And so I think that's kind of where my heart never could, like, forget him. He, I remember he was giving me a ride somewhere, and this is back when we were in Charlotte getting to know each other. And um, he, I knew he lived alone. He didn't have any roommates at that point, and he lived a very simple mm-hmm. budget, no um, no cable, um, no internet, and, like, he would watch movies and read books. And I was just like, you read, like, voluntarily on your own? What do you read, you know? Mm-hmm. Told me a couple books, and then he said, and then I read the Bible. And that was the first mm-hmm. male I had ever met, any guy I'd ever dated, you know, that had a relationship with Christ on their own mm-hmm. outside of getting to know me and found out that I was a Christian and then wanted to go to church with me or, and even if it, they were, you know, there was, there was one guy that was adamantly like fervently passionately turned on to Jesus after our relationship. And so, you know, it wasn't like he came to Christ through me, but just hanging out with me, going to youth group, going to church, that kind of thing. But Michael was the first one I met that was, he was a Christian. He read the Bible. He had his own faith. Um, and we were very, very, very similar in our backgrounds and very equally yoked. Mm. And, um, so fast forward back to Columbia, he's at upstate. I'm in Columbia, South Carolina, trying my best to pretend he doesn't exist. And I think he's trying to do the same thing for me, you know, pretend that I don't exist. And I started in, uh, one of my jobs was a bank teller. And so loved it and started, that was like I'd done other office clerk, you know, secretary type jobs like that. And that was the first one that really kind of required like a whole different kind of skill set. Mm-hmm. And I was a go-getter as soon as, you know, mm-hmm. back to me being a three, you know, and recognizing that about my personality. As soon as I went in, you know, I learned what my, you know, learned what your basic, how to process transactions, that sort of thing. And then I didn't want to be held back by anything. Like if a customer came to my counter and they needed anything, I wanted to be able to serve them. And so I just... So I, that's how my management like just really got impressed by me because I had this initiative mm-hmm. and I always wanted to learn. And then I would even find helplines and learn stuff on my own. And so that was my part-time job, trying to get back in school and trying to figure out how to do it because it was out-of-state tuition. So I find out about the, the, the bank I was working for had a tuition reimbursement program. And so I needed the money up front to pay for my class, and then the reimbursement would come at the end after my grades came back. 
So that's the first slippery slope. That's where I said, well, I know how to, I know the protocol pretty well. I know what they look for. I know how they're counting me down. I know when they count me down. I know, and, and I kind of came up with this idea on how I could take the money out of my drawer, pay the tuition and, and my books, and then figure out over time, I'll just put the money back as I get my paychecks. Or, and I, I think at that time I was also like a part-time waitress. And so if I get cash from my waitressing job, I'll just feed it back. Mm-hmm. And then worst case, as long as I can cover this up for the semester, when I get my grade back, I'll, put the, I'll definitely put the money back in when I get that check. So it starts about January of 2000. That was January 2005. And so got away with it and made the grade, got my re- reimbursement back, and didn't pay it back. And then at that point, um, started to – I had other things – that were responsibility things, and it wasn't like I was taking vacation or going shopping per se. It was very responsible things, like putting tires on my car. My car broke down. I need to, bo- I need to borrow money to go pay for this. Um, I'm back in school this semester. I didn't use that reimbursement check like I said I would. I've gotten away with it this long. When I get the next reimbursement check, I'll do it. Um, we did have – it was a pretty big corporate bank, and so – you got a lot of benefits, and so we actually got, like, small quarterly bonuses at that time for little things. So I was like, oh, I'll get a bonus, and, and I'll, I'll put it back in. So I'm using all these incentives and all these opportunities to help myself believe that what I was doing wasn't that bad. So that's handling the, the nerve side. That's where my, my audacity and my ability to, to continue forward doing what, what I was doing because and also because in a weird way you feel like you're doing a crime but you're not hurting anybody. Cuz this is a huge corporate bank. Oh yeah. They've got tons of money. I'm working the protocol so well they don't even know what's going on so they don't even miss it. You know, those are the kinds of things that that are going through my mind. So the money had gotten really it is literally just like if if anyone got a credit card at a young age and just went crazy with it. That's literally the best way I can describe it is I felt like I'd gotten a um, like credit card with no spending limit, yeah, no questions asked, and just whatever I needed, I took care of. So it got to be a pretty big amount pretty quickly. And here's the the funny thing is I did I was not because I was such a quote unquote like disciplined kid, I'm pretty good. I have an open relationship with my parents. I never really was like mischievous in terms of like trying to hide things that it just spiraled out of control. Um, and I didn't know the extent of the crime. And so that's kind of hard looking back on it when you hear like what someone was thinking when they were going through it. Mm-hmm. I really like we'll get to the point where there was like a pivotal moment where I recognized the weight Mm-hmm. And so that's how far I had disassociated myself from what I was, like the choices that I was actually making. Sure, it felt like a tool for a really 100%. long time. It was a, it was exactly what it for was for good things. I mean, like you said, you didn't do anything crazy with it. I mean, like you yeah, totally yeah. were able to justify, like right. I need new tires, and what else am I going to do? Yeah. And I need to pay tuition. Yeah. So and then, meanwhile, 
nobody knows. So no one in my family, I haven't told. Um, Michael and I had, in 2004, the year before I started stealing the money, my grandfather passed. And so mm-hmm. that was that was the biggest death I'd ever dealt with. I was mm-hmm. very close to my grandfather. And the minute that Michael heard or got wind that my grandfather had passed, he just rushed. He went through the funeral with me. He was right oh, there with me yeah. the whole time. And that kind of reignited sure. you know, the relationship with us. Even though he was still upstate and I was still in Columbia, we would occasionally see each other every couple months. Okay. And he, I, he had no I had not told him anything. And I think that occasionally my parents would, would be curious as to how I never, ever needed support, not even like a 50 bucks, 100 bucks, help paying a phone, phone bill. Like they, I think that they were just so impressed. Okay, yeah. maybe Lindsay's just living such a, you know, meager, single girl lifestyle that she's able to do, go to school and sure. and work these jobs and, and do it. So, um, Well, and you're their little girl, so exactly. they're not going to go to worst case scenario. Exactly. You know, I mean, not that that's worst case scenario, but, you know. Nothing, there was nothing really telling to them to, to question it, per sure. se. Sure, sure. So we're going through that summer of 2005, and that's when I started praying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm in too deep. Because the lie was eating you alive. Oh, yeah. yeah. And that's where I was telling you I had the, the fantasy of the police coming, the police coming yeah. in and and it being on the news. Because that's what I'm saying. My mm-hmm. my rational thinking and understanding of crime was not – I wasn't street smart, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. Yeah. I was not, like, hip and cool and sure. knew, like – it's just that, I guess, and, and kind of looking back on it, and, and I, you know – over the years, I have sought counseling because I look back on it like, why did I do that <laughs> big sure. thing? Yeah. You know? And one of the things that the um, one of the counselors kind of helped me, she, she said that uh, that my mind had come up with the algorithm mm. of like how to hide the protocol. And she said, and I think you compartmentalized everything in that algorithm that you you were just like, I'm going to put the emotions and the fear factor over here in this little box. And I'm going to, and then I use like a, like my imagination to, and my justification to camouflage it. Sure. And then I'm going to do this over here. And so I was just going through life, but because the Holy Spirit was still in me, amen, yeah. that I just, literally my nerves got so oh. bad, you know. So fortunately, <laughs> I knew it to the morning um, that I was pulling up to the bank um, I knew in my gut, like the, there was, we would get audited and that's what I mean by protocol. I had determined all of those steps. I had figured all of it out without even trying. Like it was just like, it came natural to me. And so we were, we, we got audited. And so that was in the moment when they, I couldn't hide the protocol anymore. Um, <clears throat> and my manager called me in mm-hmm. and that's where I was saying, even then he said, mm-hmm. um, you know, this, this looks erroneous. This looks like there's something going on. We're going to do an investigation, but he was still trying to protect me at that point because sure. he truly believed that I hadn't done anything you know, wrong. Done anything yeah. wrong. Yeah. Um, so to the day of my life, to this day, my most intimate moment with Christ happened that night, like mm-hmm. with and and with with God, and God was on His throne, and um, so in that moment, my manager had to terminate me, which I reckon you know kind of knew that, mm-hmm. but he didn't believe that I had done anything wrong. He just thought he had to terminate me for protocol. I knew that they were going to uncover soon what I'd been hiding at that point for eight months. So this is August of 2005. This August 2005 is when I started praying. I've you know, looked back in journals and, and kind of... So I actually got fired September, and the dates are s- specific for a reason. 
So I actually got fired September 26th, 2005. Found out 30 days later that I was pregnant. Wow. Yeah. And um, Michael was the dad. Michael and I had been, um, <clears throat> ever since we had kind of rekindled our relationship, um, you know, we would we would visit each other back and forth and see each other. So it wasn't hard to figure out. And uh, I didn't know this the day that I got terminated. I had no clue that there was a little nugget inside of my belly. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's where I think it's so beautiful when you look back on the prayer and you look forward at the grace. So the night that I got fired, Michael was um, – I actually called him. He was still such a, you know – close person to me at that point. And I said, hey, I got fired you know, from the bank. Can we meet up in Charlotte? That was about halfway. Mm -hmm. I said, like, and then, you know, that was where we'd met and we had still a lot of friends there. I said, can we meet up in Charlotte? You know, this is going to be really tough for me. And uh, we, we both played, we love, we like to play golf. And so I said, can we go play? Like, there was a par three course there that we met. And we did. And, it, and I remember that was a really sunny, like really calming moment for me because we did play par three. It was really fun. And, he still had a friend that lived in Charlotte, and so we, we ended up just going back to that friend's house and cooking out a dinner. So it was, I was able to kind of relax and forget that there's this crash course, this collision, this tidal wave of truth coming behind me. Mm -hmm. So that evening, my manager, not knowing that I left to go to Charlotte, he reaches out to me. He's like, you know, hey, Lindsay, um, can you come in tomorrow? We, we, we need to go back and look at some stuff. And I said, absolutely. And so I remember taking that phone call outside. I go back inside to tell Michael, hey, the bank needs me to come back for some more questioning tomorrow. Now, mind you, Michael has no idea what I've done or what I'm, I'm being questioned about. And uh, he's like, well, I'll drive you down. You know, I'll, I'll go with you through this. And, and so he did, but he still thinks that is protocol questions. So we go inside. There's an investigator from a corporate investigator that's figured out what's going on. He's got a ton of, of sheets with highlights. And I can even see across the table that he's found everything, and he found exactly how I was hiding it. So Michael's outside. He stayed in the car. I go in, go back to the room with the corporate investigator, and I see it. And his first question is, you know, Lindsay, it wasn't protocol, was it? And I tried for a split second, tried to do the denial. Like, mm -hmm. no, no, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. And still have never told, you know, to that moment, no one knew what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I believe that he was one of the first, um, if he's not an angel, he's definitely a Christian man because mm -hmm. I believe the Holy Spirit was in the room and he was not aggressive with me at all. And he just said, Lindsay, I can see it. I know, mm -hmm. I know what went on. Um, Let's just talk about the truth, um, and let's just get it all out on the table. And I closed my eyes, and the Holy Spirit just took all the weight, mm. all the weight that you've, you feel you, if you hear stories of people speaking of salvation or the moment where they feel the Holy Spirit coming in their body and they feel this weightlessness. I felt it in that room in that moment, and I just knew I, knew I was forgiven regardless of anything. I knew that he was with me. Mm. So it gave me the courage to continue forward and, and speak and, and tell him and, and confessing and just laid it out on the table and said, you know what, you're right. And so from that point on, the rest of the questioning was more protocol, procedural, corporate, how can we 
avoid this in the future with other employees. And the interview took about two hours and in the, and this is, and I haven't had to see any of my coworkers. Remember I had fear of the shame and being in front of them. I didn't have to see any of my coworkers and he didn't even make me face my manager. Wow. Which was gut wrenching to me at that point because that person had so much trust in me, had asked me, you know, bold face, did I, mm-hmm. did I take the, mm-hmm. the money? And I said, no. So he actually let me go out the back door and told me that um, he did tell me that they were going to have to pursue the authorities and mm-hmm. that they would reach out to me. So I tell Michael and I get back in the car. Michael can tell I've been crying, you know, mm-hmm. I'm really upset. So he's kind of just like, what happened in there? Sure. And uh, I said, they, they can't find the money. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty bad. And he says, okay, um, you know, what, what's our next step? What do we need to do? And I said, Michael, I took the money. And I remember <laughs> we were on I-77 and like he, his foot came off the gas and he just, I remember him just like very slowly pulling to the right, like all the way off into the grass. And then he just sat there quietly and he wasn't mad and he wasn't uh, you know, upset with me. It was more just like, I think it, I think in that moment, there's a lot of um, choices that Michael's made in his life that he wishes he could change as well. Mm-hmm. And so he felt a sense, almost just like a sense of grace to where he was. It wasn't like he was like, you're the one that screwed up this time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. It was just more like, oh, my word. That's a that's a big one. <laughs> I, I was not <laughs> yeah. prepared for that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so moving on, he was the only person that knew because the 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 actual prosecution took takes a very long time. Huh. And so we made the choice not to tell my parents. He asked me on a couple of occasions if if I wanted to tell my mom and dad. I said no. They'll you know, they they mom and dad were just your average middle class. I was like there's no way they can afford a lawyer. I was yeah. like they will They'll do everything they can. They'll max out their credit cards to give me the money to pay that that back. They'll. they'll and I said, no, I, I did this. Mm-hmm. I'm not burdening anyone else mm-hmm. with with what I've done. So, Michael and I actually, in a roundabout way, make um, both of us make plans to to end up back in Charlotte. Okay. So I, I had an opportunity. Michael's sister needed a roommate, and so I left Columbia like the next week, and moved in with her. Still didn't know I was pregnant at that point. Okay. So Michael and I actually, even though we were friends and we had gone through a lot together, and even though he knew this mm-hmm. secret, mm-hmm. we didn't care for each other very much after that. Like we, we both did make plans to move to Charlotte. Um, we'd actually like officially decided that we weren't going to date. <clears throat> I've always been really good friends with his sister outside of, of mm-hmm. our relationship, and so we just said, you know, we're not in the same, we're not in similar places right now. I'm coming mm-hmm. off of this this situation with work. Sure. I have immense fear. I have no idea because I'm not familiar with crime. So I have no idea what, what the next step is. And I don't even know what authorities are going to be contacting me. Right. Is is it the the cops? Is it a detective? Is it, you know. So pick up work as quickly as I can. And and that's and that's what's so funny is that I th- I thought your criminal, like even when you'd been charged with something. Well, at that point I actually hadn't been charged. Okay. They just, I knew they were going to pursue yeah, um, prosecution. Legal action, yeah. yeah. I thought that like it was going to be on my background immediately. Yeah. That's it's not. So like I thought I, yeah. I had to like, 
in my mind, I was like, I got to get another job before anything shows up. Like, I don't know. I'm thinking like credit that like it shows up immediately or something. And, and I remember, um, went back to a a restaurant that I worked at when I was at UNC Charlotte. They, Mm -hmm. they hired me right away. And about a month later, um, and my parents knew that I'd gotten fired. They just, they thought it was just like everyone else in my friends and family always think that that was just a big protocol misunderstanding. And that's why Lindsay got fired, that it was just. So, and so a lot of my family and friends, their heart went out to me um, just because I had I'd gotten let go and mm-hmm. kind of had to move back to Charlotte overnight. And um, and my dad's checking in on me one morning, and and so he's it's like, are you you doing good? You you back on your feet yet? You getting there? And I said, yeah, but I think maybe just ulcer. Like I'm real like nauseous all the time. And I was like, I think that my nerves are just like shot through mm-hmm. this. And uh, and I mean, Dad was was honest and he just said, well, could you be pregnant? And I was like, no, there's no way. Like, I don't have a boyfriend. Yeah. Like Michael and I can't stand each other. You know, mm-hmm. um, we're not, there's, there's nothing, there's no stork coming. Like, mm-hmm. no. And, uh, like that was it. Went to my, I went on to work that day. And so I think it was another week that I'm progressively nauseous. Michael's mom and, and my roommate, you know, I'm, Michael's sister's my roommate. So, like, friends and family are reaching out to nurses and doctors and saying, like, Lindsay's nauseous all the time. Like, what could this be? And, um, like, I think at one point somebody was like, maybe you have diabetes, you know. And, and uh, <laughs> so, you know, fast forward, I finally get the courage um, to take a test. So you really had – you yeah, did not was, think. Oh, and see, that the key factor is that, like, my – Feminine yeah. <laughs> times were always like whenever I went through stress, yeah, it, it would it disappear. Gone. Yeah, okay. And so, so that wasn't like an indicator for you at all. And to me, it was the stress from losing yeah, my job that sure. I was like, and like a, a, a an investigation into you, literally. Yeah. So, so it, you really you were like, I guess I'll do this just to get that one off the table. Yeah, exactly. Okay. okay. So, <laughs> and it's just like a tell, like you see on TV. Um, Michael's sister and I, um, we. Like, woke up that morning, went to church together. We come home from church, and it was on the way home from church that I was like, just stop at the, the CVS. Yeah. Let me run in. And yeah. she knew that yeah, what okay. I was doing. Yeah, you yeah. know, she knew. And uh, and I was like, this always happens. And then the minute that, you know, I right. take the test, yep. it's it's fine. Yeah. So that's exactly what, what I thought was going to happen. And we come back, you know, we go into the apartment, and <laughs> she hears me in the bathroom like, no way. Yeah. She hears me say that loud as crap. Like, yeah. <laughs> she hears me say, no way. And so, like, it's the whole weight of the world. I don't, I mean, I'm, I have a job at that point. I'm not in school. I just got fired. Everybody thinks that I'm, you know, just this lame, completely irresponsible person. And now I'm pregnant. And I'm not married. And... This part-time job I have is all I've got, you know, just like lowest of the lows. But in a weird way, I guess it was kind of hiding the other secret that I was. Mm. Telling that one didn't seem so bad. Sure. So telling my parents, and then I did, you know, we Michael and I tell our, our families. and But his parents and mine were both very supportive from the beginning. And... Um, asked us if we, you know, we're going to get married. And I think it was still so surprising because mm-hmm. the the pregnancy was not 
it was such a surprise. Yeah. We weren't entirely sure where we stood with our relationship. And so, and I also knew that when this prosecution came in, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to burden anyone else. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, regardless, this baby's burden because it's part of me. Mm. <laughs> but in my mind, I'm thinking, Michael, I'm not going to marry you because, and, and, and there again, I haven't been to court. I haven't necessarily done much except some of the questioning along the way and some of the, the steps that you take whenever you're, you're getting prosecuted. You know, I just, it's, I think in my mind at that time, I thought it was like taxes. I thought that the amount that they were, that I had taken was going to be like, somehow that was going to be a burden on him and he's going to have to pay it back too. So it's just like very young in my mind, very naive, um, very ignorant to what was coming, but knowing that it was going to be a big deal. The beautiful part is that our we didn't we chose not to get married right away. Um, Michael did know he knew the secret. He knew what was going on, and that's just what we chose to focus on. Any time that I would struggle with what I had with the shame, and I would want I would think about suicide. That's where the baby mm. was a gift mm. in that, and maybe it goes back to the three. Maybe it goes back to just my maternal instinct. But it's like God used my responsibility and my heart for that child to to pretty much speak to my soul and say, I know you're dealing with what you messed mm-hmm. up here, um, but you need to make sure that this little person's healthy right now. And so that's, and that was a source of joy, mm-hmm. like Zealand's laughter. Oh, it was, you know, if I went to work and, uh, you know, if I was I was a server then, and if I only made twenty dollars, come home and think about this this prosecution and this court case coming after me, I would I would just get down the floor and play with him, and it's like everything else just would fade. And he and I were were very close. Michael and I did still parent him together. We were always together, and and um, <clears throat> pretty much from the time Zealand was born, we were a couple. Um, we just weren't sure. We didn't want to. We knew that marriage wasn't going to fix the, the our, our, yeah, you know, life. We knew it wasn't going to fix any any. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't like a turnkey situation, sure, you know. Sure. And so we both we we did premarital counseling, and we did, um, and we had been off and on for so many years. So I think both of the the sets of parents were kind of like, should y'all get married? <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. And the um, it was the premarital counseling was really helpful. We were honest in that room with the mm-hmm. pastor, even though a lot of other people didn't know what I was facing. Um, we were honest with him. Yeah, it was a pastor that I grew up with. Um, we did get married at the church, or we got married at my, on my parents' property, and it was my pastor. So when he looked us in the face and said, "You guys have lived so much life to this point," he said, "I really think that you're going to be okay." He said, "It's the couples that that come in here with like puppy dog eyes for each other and." are kind of in the, like, you know, newlywed, like, we're yeah. just so wrapped up in each other. And Michael like and I everything's going to be perfect. Everything's going to be perfect. And Michael and I came in It's a fantasy. There. Yes. It's better to be like, hey, things are not <laughs> even close to perfect. Yeah. Exactly. We came in there in our premarital counseling, like, um, we are two humongous screw-ups, and yeah. we don't want to be screw-ups together. So, and, and I just remember... Um, the pastor was just, he smiled and was just like, you're going to be okay. Yeah. You both love the Lord. Uh, you both, um, you do have a love for each other, whether you recognize that or not. And and so we did get married um, the next summer when, when Zeeland was a year old. Wow. 
And you're living in Charlotte at this time? That's correct. Okay. We, were, we were in Charlotte and got married back at mom and dad's house in Wilmington and very small backyard um, wedding. But that, even from a little girl, I knew I always wanted to get married at my parents' property. So it was still mm-hmm. perfect and it was still dreamy. You yeah. know, we, um, it was very special. And we were in, you know, we were living very meager, you know, yeah. mid twenties, didn't, neither of us had finished college um, and both just working jobs to try and be this little family, you know, and, and then figure out our future. When I did um, get contacted by the authorities, it was during my pregnancy and I was about six months along at that point. And I remember, you know, kind of having the baby bump when I went in to, to do the, the interview. The interview was with the Secret Service, and that was enlightening. I always associated the Secret Service with the president. Yeah, me too. And um, it turns out that the Secret Service, any any money taken um, that is f- secured by the FDIC, mm-hmm. even if it is down to like a nickel, you can be federally prosecuted because it's a federal crime. So in that moment when I'm doing my interview, I remember one of the things that we were trying to do was actually figure out where I'd spent the money. It's part of my statement was, yeah. you know, like detailing everything. Yeah. And, and I couldn't remember. Oh, I'm sure. I would, I would say, um, you know, I would give them things, but that's just how frivolous and how, you know, how, how terrible the situation had gotten so quickly was just that I was selfishly just constantly like taking this money when nobody was looking and uh, and then couldn't even account for all of it whenever yeah. it came time to 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 review you know what happened, and so I remember and those guys also um, the two investigators that I had to or the two detectives that I interviewed with the Secret Service I remember in the the interview we got to some point maybe it was closer to the end and I had to I had to sign my my statement and on my statement it said that I was being charged with a felony. And that in that moment mm-hmm. was when I realized the weight in yeah. terms of crime. Yeah. And that I was facing prison, not just paying the money back and hoping that they will let me go and that I'll just have this on my criminal record. Like mm-hmm. that. And then I was so, there was still this like goal in my heart to be an engineer. I still mm-hmm. wanted to finish my degree. I knew that was like where I wanted in my career. You know, I knew where I wanted to go. And when I signed that paper, and I remember just looking at that word felony, that was when I was like, I'm never going to finish college because I'm never, like, how am I going to be able to explain to a school that, you know, this took place in my history and in my life? And, I mean, I just, I was like, I'll have to be in a one-on-one interview, like talking to a dean for somebody to ever take me into another college. Yeah. So that was a pretty, like, hopeless moment whenever I was signing the, the paper, for recognizing exactly, I'm sure. yeah. you know, like when it's got my name on it and it says what I'm being charged with, and then it and then it's, um, at that point it doesn't necessarily say what you're facing, like what you could face, but it's still just like I associated those two words, felony equals no more school. No more school. And I, I just, I remember that's when I dropped my head. And probably other than just the fear and having tears from, from, from being scared of what was, uh, scared of the unknown and what was coming, I remember dropping my head and just crying in that moment. And the, the investigator was kind of, he was not condescending. It wasn't rude. He just kind of said, Lindsay, 
you know, we can go through this entire um, this entire interview, and you're not hiding anything. You're being pretty open with us. He said, so why why the emotion right now? And I said, because, and that's when I said, I, I'll never be able to finish school. Hmm. You know, like I'm going to, I'm confessing to what I've done. I understand the way court works, that this is going to go into court, and I'm going to stand before a judge and say, I'm guilty of this. So I know it's going it's going on my record at that point. Yeah. And so I'm just So it's kind of like I looked at my future like I have no future. Mm-hmm. Because now I'm 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 6 months pregnant and I I'm going to be a felon. <laughs> like that's just how I, I the weight was just so uh it was it was heavy. Yeah. So I'm going to you know circle back to one thing I brought up and and I didn't really I chased a rabbit, saw a squirrel, and went somewhere else with it. But it's definitely the most important part of, of the story is back when um, the day I got fired, Michael met me in Charlotte, and we played par three um, golf. And I got the phone call from my boss at um, the cookout at his house that night. And Michael says, yeah, I'll take you back tomorrow. You know, So I know that I'm going back in. I know I'm facing confession, but I don't I think I'm facing the FBI or the, yeah. or the yeah, cops, sure. you know, I think that I'm going to go back and get arrested. That's what I think is happening. So from our, our time in Charlotte, we, and then this is even the same church that like I ended up going with Michael's sister later on, but there was this one specific um, church campus that we were pretty familiar with around that was close to school. And I said, Michael, um, I need to pray like right now. Like I need to go to a church and pray. Um, like I wanted to be on an altar and and I know that you can create an altar, you know, on on your knees no matter where you are. But it was just, it was like, this is what I need mm-hmm. right this second. Mm-hmm. So Michael got up and he said, let's 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 go to to that church and um and w- the church I grew up in Wilmington was it was kind of in the country and there was a little chapel that they would leave unlocked and so that's kind of the scenario I was hoping for was that we could find a chapel that would be unlocked, that I could just go in and pray and then leave. Yeah, in Charlotte, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, they're again, you know, n- <laughs> not thinking, not hip, totally ignorant. So we do get to the campus, and no idea what time it is at night, but it is dark, and all you have are just kind of like the parking lot, automatic street lights, lights. Yeah. yeah, street lights. And the church was a pretty big campus, and I, I know where the main you know sanctuary is. So that's the door I walk up to first, and it's locked. And so I was like, okay, turn around, start to walk back to the car. I don't know where a man appears from one of the side buildings, and he's got keys, like the big. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely the guy I want to talk to. Mm-hmm. So I'll go over to him, and I can't even get words out. Like I was just like um, very just shaken, mm-hmm. very just like, like kind of trembling and was just, and I, I, what I could say to him was like, I need to pray. And I was just trying to say, is there anywhere? And it's like, he knew mm-hmm. he could look at me and he knew. And he walked over to the sanctuary, used the keys, unlocked the door, took me in, walked me into a prayer room that was beside the sanctuary, unlocked that door, let me in. And then he leaves and shuts the door behind me. And it was a, to this day, um, the most intimate moment with me, um, before, before God on His throne, the confession, just the like outpour. Mm. It was genuine. It was, it was shame. It was um, just destitute. Just mm-hmm. absolutely, 
I have no idea how I got here, but I do all at the same time, and I hope that you don't shun me for this. And I think of when David says, like, please do not take your spirit from me. Like, that, that is where I was at. I was just like, please don't forget my name. Don't, don't leave me behind. Don't, you know, don't, don't stop. Mm-hmm. Please just, just stay with me. And I remember asking for the courage to just to confess and asking, just asking for strength to get through what I had to do to, to make it right. And so I think that's where all the courage came from the next day. A little tidbit, uh, Michael and I, we did do premarital counseling. I mentioned we did that back in Wilmington mm-hmm. um, with my, ma- my pastor, this mm-hmm. one who wed us. Um, but we, we did do some counseling after I had Zealand. We were living in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And so went to one of the pastors at, at that same church. That's where we would attend in Charlotte. And we were there one night um, meeting with the pastor and getting done and just kind of chit-chatting after our counseling session. And we asked for the custodian, the janitor, like, who is this this person like do, or do you you have yeah. like a you know someone that comes like a member of the church that comes in and cleans at night or mm-hmm. um you know what's what's the story there I'd love to tell this person yeah. um that that was really special for me and they've never had anyone on staff to ever do that wow um and that's not typical of anyone of their membership yeah. to carry keys around yeah Wow. So I've never... I just wow. got like chills. Yeah, like, I my know. Head is like, so it's like, who is that man? And so that's yeah. what I'm saying. Like, I've never... I, I still believe in my heart out there that it, that it could have been someone that was just at the right place at the right time that God had... You know, that it is just a real person that maybe that person I was talking to at church didn't realize. Or it could have very well been, yeah. you know, an angel that, that God put there to to let me in. Because I never saw him when I left. And right. the doors... Like I told you, he he unlocked one door and then he unlocked the second, and then when he left, he was gone. Yeah. yeah. So, <clears throat> but that was pretty special because that was just I didn't have it all figured out when I left that night, but sure. I knew I knew that I was starting in the right place. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's a uh, the the beautiful part. I mean, it's all beautiful. It really is. But the the grace, the moment where we recognize the grace. Is and the moment that I think about often and, and reflect on often is when I actually had to go to court. Federal court doesn't work the same as like what you think on television or what we see on any television show. Yeah. And, and when you're in trouble for uh, breaking federal law, there's guidelines. There's a like a grid that's literally um, based on the the weight of your crime okay. is one. Access of the access the way they look at it, and then the other thing that they match it up to is your criminal history. So I had no criminal history, but the weight of my crime was was massive. Yeah, um, because it was FDIC, FDIC. It was federally insured money. Mm-hmm. So, um, you do have your defense attorney. You do have your um, prosecutor, like the DA, that's mm-hmm. um, prosecuting you, pursuing you in these charges. But the judge is held to these guidelines when it comes to sentencing. Mm-hmm. So okay. bottom line, no matter what, when you looked at those guidelines, it said that I was like mandatory three to six months in prison. That was the minimum. Okay. Absolute minimum. Okay. So there was no possibility for me to get out of this without serving time. Okay. So, but when you're talking to your defense attorney, and, and I went with a public defender because I didn't have any. Sure. Any money, um, 
the the defense attorney or the public defender, when he would talk to me on the phone, he was a very kind person, mm-hmm. um, but he gave me no reason to worry. He just kept saying over and over, and he was honest with me about the guidelines, but he would say, I really just, you don't have a criminal history. You, you've got all this, you have a life to show where you, you're, mm-hmm. you're trying to be a responsible ind- individual. Um, he just said, I, I just don't see you getting, you're not going to have to serve time. And so, of course, that's the questions that Michael and I were asking a lot of because we had sure. to figure out the baby. Sure. Yeah. What do you know? The maximum? Did you, did he the, ever tell you the maximum? The maximum sentencing? would have been um, two years. Okay. So two years was maximum, and then a minimum of three to six months. Okay. So we were, but there's still always that hope deep down, even sure. though he's saying that's what it is. Yeah. He's also following up, saying, "I just don't see you going to yeah, prison." Yeah. 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 And you're a new mother, like I. Yeah. And, you know, I just don't see it. And then um, we, the day that we, we went to court, um, we didn't have a babysitter. We didn't have a car. Um, we had to borrow a car to drive back to Columbia to go to court that day. And it was just me and Michael and the baby, baby Zealand. Babies can't go into, um, into the courtroom. And so Michael had to stay out in the lobby, and all he could do was look through the windows to see. Oh, wow. Yeah. What's, and this was my sentencing. So this is the last court date. This is the end of everything. I've already turned in my guilty plea. Yeah. That's all I'm here for is either to find out that I get to go back home with Michael mm-hmm. um, or he's going to have to call my boss and um, my parents and tell them that, He's a single dad for a couple months. Yeah. So in that moment, I'm standing before the judge. The The judge is, is a woman, and she was very was very level-headed and, and asked very frank questions of me. Mm-hmm. So she didn't necessarily let on either way to me. Like, I didn't know if I right. was impressing her or if yeah. she was disgusted. Sure. Had no idea. Yeah. And... The the DA was actually had a had a um, had a had a previous career in banking, and so the DA was actually putting in a word in terms of he was the only person that I ever like in the whole time recognized and gave me grace in terms of even though I never said to anybody except I wasn't when I was in the uh, questioning that day with with the Secret Service I never told anybody else. The um, I didn't know what I did in terms of the felony part of it. I never said that to anyone, and the DA said it that day. He said, in my um, career history, I'm actually familiar with banking. I'm familiar with fraud. And he said, and I, and I know that we, we do a very good job of making them understand and, and people shouldn't steal. Um, but he was pretty much trying to like say, like, She doesn't know. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's go a little bit easy on this girl because um, she just doesn't understand the weight of it. So, yeah, the DA was was trying to put in a good word for me. And the ones that actually speak to the judge mm-hmm. in, in more of a prosecutorial manner are um, probation officers. So there was a probation officer that I had interviewed with multiple times prior to the sentencing, and that's what he's coming up with. He's going to give a report okay. to the judge, and that's what the judge is looking at to make her decision for my sentencing. She's going to look at this report, this probation officer's written in his interviews with me. She's going to take his suggestion, look at the guideline, and then she's going to sentence me. 
And he was loud, aggressive, just like he was, he was relentless Mm. and he was not backing down. Mm. And he said, um, and he kept going back to the minimum sentence and he kept saying, no, she's three to six months. Like it's mandatory. It's on the guideline. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. She's going. And the judge like, and they're speaking in a lot of legalese that I can't really like keep up with. Oh, so you're in the room. This this is, yeah, this is in the moment. Yeah, yeah. And the DA's already said the kind words, you know, on my behalf. Yeah. And my defense attorney's already kind of said my statement. And then the last part's the probation officer. And that's, they're going to, they're going to. He's going hard. He's like, going he's, hard. Yeah. Okay. And I'm confused because I'm like, isn't this guy over here, the prosecutor? Yeah. Like, yeah. why, why are you trying to make sure that I go to prison today? Like, yeah. I don't understand it. And he had, uh, he had taken my transparency and in my interview with him and 100% thwarted it to to make me um, to really really, I mean it's true what I had done was true and I confessed all the details, but he was using it in a way that just made it a story. Yeah, and not true. And like not true of what you, what. No, more just like she's evil. Oh, okay, that's that's the way he was trying to portray like like an evil genius mm-hmm, kind of okay. exactly. That's okay. exactly the way he was going. Okay, and uh, and and he was. Do you think it's because a little bit of your naivete, naivete, what's that word? Naivete. (laughs) (laughs) That he was, uh, you know, like he was like, there's no way she could be this. I think so. Naive to this massive crime. One example he specifically used Mm -hmm. was when we were interviewing, they, it's kind of, I mean, that's what I'm saying. I went through so many things that were similar to what I think of when you're, when you're filling out a loan application or a credit report, but I constantly had to give like previous five years addresses like every time I went yeah, to a, okay. an interview yeah, or something yeah, yeah. and so wait uh, for the for anything whether it was with the cop okay or so for the for the, for the probation officer the criminal yeah yeah aspect okay. exactly okay so with the probation officer we're reviewing yet again kind of like my past yeah okay life I was 25 at this time and my so it's kind of like 18 to 25 like let's review your quote unquote adult life and and what your choices and where you've lived. And, and so he made that point one time where he said, you don't even skip a beat when you're giving me these addresses. You don't skip a beat when you're, um, he said, you even said that, that you're close to your parents yet. They don't know what you're doing here, you know? And so it was just a lot of those type details. Yeah. Um, and maybe he was psychologically smart and challenging me in those things. And at the time I just felt like attacked or whatever, but Anyways, the, 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 the point is that we're, we're, when we're in court, the only person that was fervently saying, no, this one will not receive mercy, was that probation officer. And you said he has the most weight on the judge. He does. Okay. So, but the judge is still s- sitting on her seat. Sure. And, and she's still the final say. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And she, that's pretty much what she's saying is, I'm in charge here. Yeah. Not you. Yeah. And... I remember looking over my shoulder, like in the glass, and Michael was, his face was like up on the glass in one of the windows, and Zeeland's face was up on the glass in the other window. And I just remember in that moment was just like, is that the last time I'm going to see him for the next couple months, you know? And um, the judge, so the prosecutor gets somebody on the call. Like, they're going to the next degree. We're going we're gonna to call a specialist that knows the guidelines so well and... And, and like sounds to me kind of like a paralegal type, somebody mm-hmm, who's like mm-hmm. sitting in a desk with all yeah. these books open. Yeah, and and just she knows. looks it up and she's got the reference and she reads it straight out of the book, like what that, right, right, right. that guideline is. And so kind of like 
the the pros- the the probation officers like kind of like there I told you mm-hmm. she's mm-hmm. going mm-hmm. so how long are you going to sentence her and the judge just put her hands down and she said she's not going to jail today mm-hmm. and and so in that moment I just remember just being like oh, okay and what her final sentence was I had to pay full restitution and then one day time served that's how she fulfilled that minimum requirement and the one day time served pretty much just meant that when I left that courtroom, I did have to go downstairs. I was booked, but then I was also released oh. right after that. So they called that time served, and then I got where it would say three to six months was what I was supposed to serve. I got four months intense uh, house arrest, which is what you are when you have a baby anyways, usually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so you, it worked out. like. Yeah. So at that point, the... I literally we got we got to go back home to Charlotte together <laughs> that day. I bet that was such a relief. Oh man, that breath that you took. Well, it was in a weird way, um, and this was uh, I did actually kind of do like a um, we we did a very very deep like searching of that memory mine um, and counseling because I had a very opposite response, and it's always puzzled me. But I had a response like I was angry. Yeah, because you that oneness in you probably feels like no, no, no. I should get punished. Like you want to be punished because you know what you did is wrong. That's gotta be. And yeah. and I mean, I remember we stopped at, at Subway to eat right when we got done with with the uh, the sentencing. And I remember like Michael and I almost got in a fight. Or mm-hmm. I mean, practically mm-hmm. were yeah. like exchanging yeah, yeah, yeah. words yeah. and just like. Uh, and he he looked at me and he was like, "How can you? How can you?" be like this right now. Right. Like you should just yeah. be like so happy. Yeah. And I didn't know it at the time, but that's what it was, yeah. was that I hadn't forgiven myself. Sure. Yeah. And so I was just like, and to go through those emotions yeah. of such optimism going in that, you know, the defense attorney keeps saying I won't go. So maybe I won't go. Right. And and then this guy calling the like exactly. paralegal and yeah. I heard someone assimilate um, mercy to, uh, Christ is uh, so like like the devil's in front of God, and he's throwing all of these um, accusations your way to the judge and saying this is why this person should go down. Mm-hmm. And then Christ comes in and he he puts his arm across you and says, "Not this one. Mm. Like this one's already been taken care of." Yeah. And I experienced it that day. Yeah. That's such a visual yeah. picture where this person was adamant. Um, accusatory, and he wasn't wrong, even though he was kind of thwarting it. He yeah. wasn't wrong about what he was saying about me. But the judge just said, "Nope, she's not going. Mm. She's going home today." Mm. And um, so the grace that I received and the mercy—I I guess it was—it's it's, you know I've looked at the difference in definition <laughs> yeah. between grace and mercy, and in that sense, it's mercy. And the mercy inspired me, and it took a long time to get over the shame. Mm. Um, I still have to, you know, struggle to look back on it and think sure. that I'm you know, not this like terrible person, but it, it was fuel and it was, it ignited passion to, to fix it. And when I finally got my engineering degree and, you know, walked across the stage and got my first job, it was 10 years. And so that was the only way that, that like, because it, it, it's it's regardless, it's on my my criminal history, sure, um, forever, and it is an, a nonviolent crime, right. and yeah. so 
I do have options now that, that we have um, paid all the money back. I have options to get it literally like cleared Expunged. from my yeah. my history. But whenever I was I was looking for my first job, even with the engineering degree, I was still nervous. Sure. I don't know how far back uh, criminal checks are going to go. I had taken my first offer while I was graduating school was with the Department of Defense. And I like they loved me and I accepted the offer. And then a couple months later, they after they ran the background check, they came back to me and they said this. And I mean, they were so gracious. Like, that's what was so awesome about it is the recruiter with the Department of Defense, whenever he um, came back to me and he found I had, I even told him in my interview, I said, hey, before we get too far along, I just want to let you know, um, in case you have other candidates that you're looking at. Yeah. Um, I do have a history that may like interrupt this yeah. opportunity. Yeah. And it turned it turned in the end it, it did interrupt it and it kinda kept me from from not being able to pursue that job. But I thought it was cool that the recruiter for the Department of Defense was trying so hard because he had seen the about face. He had seen the change. He saw yeah. me, you know, years after. Yeah. How did y'all pay off the money? It um just little by little at first the it when the judge made the um the sentencing, mm-hmm. she she said at that point what my monthly payment would be. And it was very low. Okay. She knew that yeah. we were, yeah, yeah. you know, two young parents. And and so there's actually a lot of court costs, court fees. Right, yeah. And even whenever you're in on in-house arrest, mm-hmm. you are responsible for paying for the equipment that you, they use oh. to monitor you. You either have to rent it or you have to buy it. So does that mean an like an ankle bracelet? Yep. and you, And it has a perimeter thing on mm-hmm. it? Okay. And so it knew it was... It was hooked up through our, our phone line. And so, and remember struggling, so trying to figure out how to pay monthly bills. Yeah. That phone line can't ever go down. So no matter what oh, bills we can pay yeah. and what bills we can't, we the have to line. figure out how to make that phone payment every month. Wow. Wow, yeah. And so, and, uh, and when you're, and I was a waitress, and so when you're working in a restaurant, you don't have strict hours. Right. And so I was on an intensive house arrest, and so I had to give my schedule to uh, my yeah. probation officer. And if I went outside that schedule at, at all, so if yeah. I was closing at the restaurant that night and went an hour over what I would normally, yeah, she was calling me on the phone. Yeah. Hey, I know you're not at your place. What's going on? Yeah. And and we had a very open relationship. Sure. Like, yeah. And I would just tell her, say, hey, I'm closing. Uh, yeah, I'm closing and I'm finishing up mm-hmm. and, you know, you'll be able to check, you know, check in an hour. I'll be there. Yeah. Random drug test. And she could pop up anywhere, anytime um, at my job, at home. Yeah. Um, and then, so that was, so I was on the house arrest just for the couple months, you know, cut, I remember like cutting the anklet off was, was really cool. Whenever yeah. we got through the, the house arrest, I went straight to my parents' house for a month and just got to hang out by the, by the coast and be close to the water after yeah. being like, you know, in such a, cause the house arrest was through the winter season. And so that oh. Christmas and see that, and that's still, even when, after I'd been sentenced, I didn't tell mom and dad. Wow. So okay, have, so they had no clue. So Zealand's first Christmas, I'm on house arrest, and I can't go home to join in the festivities, and why not? Yeah. Those, I mean, so that's yeah. what I'm saying. Michael and I had had set up the scenario, and Michael ended up going to – he took Zealand with him um, just for one night back to his parents up here in Nashville for one day, and you know, I think it was work. I blamed it on, yeah. you know, with mom and dad, why I couldn't come, you know, so – so that Christmas day, I, I ended up making arrangements to go like to my uncle's house. So like 
And I didn't want Zealand to not be with family sure. on Christmas. Yeah. And so I remember like that first Christmas, mm-hmm. like I'm not even with Zealand that night because I'm on house arrest. Yeah. And Michael, you know, has taken him to be with, with, with the family. How long did it take y'all to pay back the money? Uh, so the taking the money, paying the money back took, um, so the sentencing was, Zealand was born in June of 2006. I was sentenced somewhere September of 2006. And so then following that year, so April of 2007, that's also the year that Michael and I got married, up until three years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. Can I ask how much? Sure. I mean, it was 20000 okay. is what I, the amount that I'd taken. I think I remember the court case was like, you know, $22, like $17 and like 80 cents or something like that. Okay. And so we got all of it paid. And we were rushing to do it before I was finishing my application for my where I still work. Yeah. Because we there again we kind of thought that it was going to show and right and didn't want that to interfere with with our, well we knew that it had interfered with my opportunity with the Department of Defense. Right. But that was the Department of Defense. Like that's yeah. Like yeah. if you're going to pick any job to go apply for with this history out of college, it's probably the last place <laughs> that you want to go. <laughs> Hey, but, you went for it. Though. That's right, exactly. But it, it, you know, it was telling. It told me what what was still out there, and and uh, but it was. I remember it was. It was a it was a huge feeling the day that um, when Michael and I wired the money to the uh, the clerk, and she like called us right back and and paid it off, and and then emailed us the receipt so we oh, had man. it, and it's it was so surreal. Sure, it was just yeah. like because it took. 12, so I guess maybe 10 years or yeah. so. So you expect there to be streamers and and yeah. glitter and a banquet. fireworks. Exactly. And then it's just like an emailed receipt yeah. from the clerk. Yeah. Cool, 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 cool. Yeah, thank exactly. you. And then, you know, I, I've shared my story with a lot of people, but, you know, then it's it's like just me and Michael are the only two that kind of like recognize what yeah. the weight of the celebration. <laughs> exactly. High five. Man. But, yeah, it's a... Uh, it, it's definitely that that just it changed my life in so many ways, mm. and it I had this this moment about three weeks ago at the plant, and and my current job is is very high stress, is directly related to the pandemic, so it's I already kind of put stress on my or pressure on myself to to do well because I'm a three, I'm an achiever, I set goals, and I have a really like strong work ethic, and so the. I tend to put more stress on myself because I just don't want things to go. Mm-hmm. I want perfect success right now because our product is so directly related to to the pandemic. And so dealing with the stress, I just was walking across the plant thinking about like, do I apply for another job? Like, mm. you know, do I do I get out of this? Do I? Because um, this is just too much. I can't take this. And 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 I'm not saying it was it was God's voice, but I do believe that when you hear the Holy Spirit speak, when you hear God move. It's it's louder, it's, but it's not loud. So maybe the word is that it's just everything else goes into the background mm-hmm. and gets quieted, and then there's just one thought that's mm-hmm. just very clear is is down to your core. Mm-hmm. And so I had one of those thoughts walking across the plant, just in my work mode, go go getter, just you know, hundred percent focused, and all of a sudden it just rose up, and it was just like you're exactly where you're supposed to be. And everything you went through to get here was all part of it. Mm. And it was just kind of like, 
a realization that I, I don't ever think that, that God wanted me to make the choice to steal. But I do believe that he saw like my submission to him and recognized it in terms of that we worked it together for the mm-hmm. good. He did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of like the stress, the the diligence, the stubbornness, the passion that was con- like always kindled and always like burning. It's like he's strengthened that all along, all of these years. And so here I am in a role that is a very important role, and I want to run. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's like, mm-hmm. no. Yeah. Like, I still have a lot more to teach you. Mm. And that's never fun. I don't want to learn anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, can we, can we learn another way? Do I have to learn through the trial now? One thing that I'm hearing from your story, and I think it's, it's very true, is the same things that allowed you to innovate mm-hmm. in a criminal way. <laughs> yeah. It's like the same coin, those attributes, those character traits that like God put into you, like God used yeah. to bring you to where you are now and can bring you to another place, exactly. like in another 10 years. Exactly. That's that's how cool that, that's how the, I call it cool. Um, I think it's it's just kind of fascinating, but that, that's what Enneagram, whenever I realized the three, yeah. it was so much more like, it wasn't the revelation of how cool Enneagram is. It was more like whether you buy into Enneagram or not, it was more like God has been by my side the entire mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. and God has orchestrated the me that I am into the me that he wants me to be Yeah, through all this stuff. And what I think about is my depravity, God thinks is my secret weapon. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and he just needed me to, he had to get me there to see how he how how he can channel that for the good mm-hmm. and that that stubbornness and that that intensity yeah so it's very cool but I could still probably count on my my hands um, other than when this podcast goes <laughs> yeah <laughs> how many people know and that that it's kind of funny you know when I was talking yeah. earlier about performing how I can yeah perform in front of a ton of people but then sit, sure. sit with two people and get nervous I have given this story in front of like a lot of people. So we really and, did need an audience. Yeah. At the end of the and day. Then, yeah, I think so. And then not, and not skip a beat. Yeah. You know, and then. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is more intimate. I think that's what it is. That, it is like, oh, this is a big mistake that I made and it's been redeemed. But like, I don't know. What do y'all might walk up and be like, I'm, I'm out. I'm done. <laughs> I can't, done. you know. We can't, we can't hang on this one anymore. <laughs> it, yeah. I think that, like there is uh, one of God, one of my best girlfriends, college roommate. Um, I've never told her. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. Um, and I don't think she'll listen to this podcast. Yeah. She's she's in in a, a different part of the world right now. But but that's and that's where the shame is obviously still there somewhere because yeah. I think that or I'd be lying to myself. If I said the shame wasn't part of it. You know? Sure. But there's also a difference whenever you're speaking to an audience that you you both assimilate and you think of grace and mercy the same mm-hmm. and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Whereas that particular friend is not a Christ follower. She like doesn't necessarily have like a she doesn't use the Bible as her yeah. um, compass. Compass. Yeah. And so I think she'd be really disappointed. Just like how yeah. could you do that? How could mm-hmm. you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. It's kind of like Christendom is not a place where it's just a, 
a community of people who haven't made mistakes. Exactly. It, it should be a place of being like, that's all you did? <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's nothing. Yeah. Look at well, all this garbage that yeah, I have exactly, in my life. Exactly. I think there is something, I feel like I've said this word a lot today, but beautiful about the fact that you don't, it, it doesn't define you, that you haven't told ever. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and I think that I see beauty in that of like, I don't like, yes, I did this, but it's not something that's defined my life. I mean, it's a huge marker in your life, but mm-hmm. that you don't feel this necessity mm-hmm. to tell people because it's like, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't, exactly. you know, and I've learned a lot from it and it's because of who I am, but you'll need to know that, you know, like that's yeah. exactly the way it is. Yeah. There's, there's been, uh, there's definitely been times where it just comes out. Sure. And then there's other times where it's just not, yeah. maybe we're not going there, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. Sure. When did you tell your parents about your criminal it was, involvement? And so I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's yeah. a very cool thing because that's one tiny little part of the story I think that is is important. And I do want to give my father the recognition for that because I think I was mentioning before that my parents always accepted everything. Like it was always a place of love no matter what choices you'd made. And so Michael and I were fighting in terms – we were not getting along very well – it was when I it was the Christmas that I was on house arrest, and uh, we both of us have a very good relationship with my dad. Michael trusts my dad, and and just um, doesn't look at him like a father in law. He's got a very very close relationship with my dad, and the fighting had 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 gotten just it was just out of hand. We just could not stand to be around each other. And I called my dad and said, "Can you come here for New Year's? You know, we 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 just we can't even be in the same house together." and can you just come, like, mediate? Um, mm. Just come sit with us. Come talk with us. And then I said, by the way, I did something really bad that I finally need to come clean with you about so you know the whole story. And my dad and I have always been, like I was saying before, we we're, all, we're very transparent. And so even in that moment, my dad just stopped and said, what would you do? Or, like, you know, what are you talking about? Yeah, what yeah, What is this? Yeah. And um, so I just, it just fell out of my mouth. Oh, so you t- told him? On the phone. On the like, phone, okay. You know, Hey, we're we're fighting. Can you come spend some time with us? And Dad's like, sure, no problem. And then and in that conversation, I said, but there's more to the story. I'll sure. tell you when you get here, kind of thing. And Dad's like, no, no, no. Don't wait till I get there. Tell me mm-hmm. so I understand the full picture right now. And I said, well, it's gonna take me a while, and it's gonna completely rock your world. Are you sure you want to hear it right now? Yes, I want to hear it right now. And so I told him. Mm-hmm. And I don't even remember how it came out of my mouth. It was probably just the blunt. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I stole this much money yeah. and went to court and. Um, one month into house arrest, so I can't leave to come to you, and that's why I need you to come to me. And um, so he did. My dad came. He um, did something very sweet for both of us, and, and it was a great. It was great. Like Michael spent time with my dad, and my dad kind of counseled him in terms of what he thought was going on, and but really just gave both of us an opportunity to be honest and just mm-hmm. say this is where I'm at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so dad got. Um, I have always been a big Duke basketball fan and Michael loves uh, Georgia football and so dad got Michael a Georgia football like a Georgia Bulldogs hat and put some cash in it and that was mm-hmm. like the Christmas card was hidden in it and did the same for me had gotten me a Duke uh, baseball cap and had hidden the card in there with some cash and the card is really uh, like the reason that I uh, never stopped going to school because when I was in high school, I was growing up, 
My dad's a mechanical engineer, and so I, I'm very similar. I love the the math and the science, just like him, and uh, and my personality is a lot like him. And so he would always. Uh, my brother um, loved, you know, went to school, loved music, and and loved. Um, religion and so he did a lot of studying in terms of like music and and the bible and then never really didn't necessarily want a business degree and clay's just he's one of those individuals that like you know school's not for college is not for everyone and that was clay and so um it was neither here nor there but clay was just like yeah i'm not a college grad um but i was the opposite mm-hmm. i was like you know back to that achiever goal-setting mentality i was like i knew from a young age i'm gonna graduate with an engineering degree it's, it's what i'm gonna do so my dad would to encourage me. He always told me that I was the one. And yes, it was from the Matrix because I graduated high school in '99, and uh, it was a popular movie at the time. And Dad and I totally nerded out and loved the Matrix. <laughs> Just the first one, though. We don't go too crazy. And so Dad would always make that that kind of you know uh, joke, detail, whatever. He'd say, um, he'd say, Lindsay, you are the one. You are the one. And. Uh, but I loved it. Sure. It's cheesy, but I loved it. Sure. I was like, I and by the one he meant that I was gonna get the degree. Um, he never shunned Clay, and he never um, made Clay feel this way or that about the fact that college wasn't for him. But I think he knew that about me that that it was for me, and uh, and that I did I did want that degree. So even when I was in Columbia, you know, switching from schools, trying to find, trying to get back in school. He always just said, you're the one. You're going to do it. I believe in you. Mm-hmm. So here we are. Dad gave me that card for Christmas, and it didn't say anything else on the inside of it except when I opened it up. It said, you are still the one. Oh. And so I was like, okay, well, obviously if I'm still the one, then I guess I'm going to do it. Yeah. But it was just in the season when he said, you're still the one, and he wrote that those words, it was, it was still so raw and st- still so... Um, hopeless in the sense that I was just like, no, I'm a felon and I'm not going to finish school. And I'm, I'm stuck to whatever I can figure out mm-hmm. how to do as this, you know, mm-hmm. young mom. But it's just, I never forgot those words. And so sure. I could. Wow. That's also like a really sweet way of your dad saying like, I forgive you and I accept you and I still believe in you, you know, exactly. like, man, that is really powerful. Because he didn't, he didn't, he could have turned it into so many other things. Oh, sure. And I just thought it was, it was also so unique too that he, it's almost like he knew that, that I had that fear. Well, and that you needed to hear that, you know, like, yeah. yeah. That sounds like Jesus does that to us too. It's kind of the same thing. Like when I got baptized, I got baptized in college and I thought like, I had this weird theology of belief. Like I'm like, I, I can't sin anymore. Yeah. You know, like I've committed my life to Christ. Right. And then you find yourself slipping. Yeah. And it's like, to hear that, like that was like, oh, wow. Yeah. That's how That's exactly God what he says. reacts to us. Like you're still the one. Like yeah. I still love you. And I still see you as this perfect yeah. image that you'll mm-hmm. be when you're with me. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, yeah, definitely. Very amazing. Amazing. It's time for a little thing we call the lightning round. Are you ready, Lindsay? I am ready. Okay. Beach or ocean? Oh, ah, that is the worst question of all time. Beach is the ocean. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> and I, was like, I was like, well, he got me because 
Do I want to be out in the waves or do I want to be on the sand? God, that was a hard one. And, uh, in your reaction, you were like, I was like, uh, I uh, could uh, see standing in the wave. Both. <laughs> the intense turmoil okay. in your brain. Uh, lake or ocean? Um, ocean. Biggest pet peeves? Smacking gum. Is that all mouth noises? Pretty much. <laughs> I can handle somebody crunching ice, but smacking, no way. What's your worst car ever? Oh, gosh. My first 1988 Camaro. It was ivory with bronze trim and bronze rims. Yes. And the doors did not open, so you had to climb through the windows. Wait, what? Yes. How long do you have that? Like a race car. I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, senior year through the sophomore year in college. Okay, one to ten. How good are you at keeping secrets? Two. <laughs> Christmas is awful. Michael hates it. Mm-hmm. Every year, my kids are like working me, working me. I like I can't even look at them. I'm just like, nope. Yeah. Go away. <laughs> For the whole month of December. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Don't make eye contact Pretty with your much. children. Yep. Yeah. Right. What's your favorite fruit? Banana. Did you panic by toilet paper? No. <laughs> Did friend- you panic by something else? You <laughs> said. So like, no, but... <laughs> Wait, say that one more time. Did I you, thought you said, did you panic and buy toilet paper? Did, yeah. Did like you the panic, pandemic. Yeah, did you panic buy toilet paper? No, COVID? a friend actually... A friend bought it for a you. A friend called me uh-uh. and uh, and she was like, hey, our boys are getting together this weekend and I'm at the store right now. Do you want two rolls or two packs? So I was like, y- yeah, sure. <laughs> Great. <Thanks. laughs> yeah. So you had someone else do your dirty <laughs> yes, work. Exactly. Nice. Yeah. Is there a difference between public listening and private listening music? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Because the dancer in me is, oh, dance club, yeah, thug, gangster, just mm-hmm. hip hop to the nines. Um, so, yeah, there's. <laughs> yeah. One hundred percent. But that's not what you're putting on the radio. <laughs> When you've got people over. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Do you have a childhood nickname? My middle name is Paige, and my entire family to this day still calls me Pages to this day. Hmm. Nice. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks so much, Lindsay. Thanks for really having me. It's been a treat. Great. And for listening and not falling asleep. <laughs> oh, you made it easy. Letting us... Go on and on and on. No, it's good. But yeah, good stuff. It's a big story, so it does take time. Hey, thanks for hanging with us. This has been the Vox Pop. We believe that everyone has a story worth telling. This podcast exists to tell those stories. If you want to be a guest on the Vox Pop, email voxpop at mdcashville.org. That's V-O-X-P-O-P at mdcashville.org. Thanks for listening.